Now I'm on. Now you're on. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's a big word for a little girl to remember. Discombobulated. I can't remember using that because I'm always discombobulated. So it probably is, uh, is one I use regularly. I don't know. But it's wonderful to be here, not just for this morning. I was here, I think, about a year ago for the day. But to be here for several days. And uh, what I'm going to do in these uh, four days, this morning, tonight, Monday night, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night, is actually bring you one message, but it'll take five sessions to get through it. (laughs) So that means you've got to be here every session if you really want to understand what I'm talking about. And what I'm going to do is read five verses to you from Galatians 2 and Galatians 3. And these five verses will be the basis of everything I want to talk about in these few days together. Galatians chapter 2. I'm going to read from verse 20. I'm using the New International Version. I know there are lots of different uh, versions that float around, but this is the one that I've been using for many years. Uh, Galatians uh, Galatians 2, verse 20, and Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish then? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? That's as far as I'm going to read. Let me tell you a story I heard one day of a man who called his friend on the telephone and his friend's little boy answered the phone. The man said, is your dad there? The little boy said, no. Where is he? He's with my mom. Where is he with your mom? They're outside. What are they doing? They're talking to the policeman. They're talking to the policeman. Yes. And they're with the fireman. Your mum and dad are talking to the policeman with the fireman. What are they doing? They're waiting for the helicopter pilot. They're waiting for a helicopter pilot. What are they doing? They're looking for me. I thought you might enjoy that, but I believe this, that there are many of us here this morning and God is looking for you. There are people in Norwich, Norwich, if you don't pronounce it properly. (laughs) I'm English, so I can't help but say Norwich, like say. (laughs) There are people in Norwich and God is looking for them. He is wanting for some of us to teach us things that we have not understood. He's wanting to remind some of us of things that we have known but have forgotten in our daily lives. He's wanting to open our eyes to new possibilities in Christian living. And he's wanting to bring us into a deeper relationship with himself, perhaps for some of us, into a relationship for the very first time. But he's looking for you. He's looking for me. And this morning, I'm going to speak to you from the first phrase in the verses I read to you earlier, in Galatians 2 and verse 20, I have been 
crucified with Christ. Not Christ has been crucified for me. That is true, of course. But there's something richer here. I have been crucified with Christ. I want to talk about that phrase this morning. What it means and my prayer is that for some of us it will bring us into new liberty and new freedom. For some of us perhaps into a new relationship with God. Now we all know of course that the center of the Christian faith is the cross of Christ. Most churches you go to you see a cross somewhere. I think I saw one. Yeah, there's one right here. Because that symbolizes what lies at the heart of the gospel. But if I were to ask you this morning, for whom did Christ die? I wonder what you would say in answer to that. Some of you might say, well, Christ died for the world. And you might quote to me some verses in scripture such as, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Or in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all men. Some of you might narrow it down and say Christ died for the church, for his people. And you might quote Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Some of you might narrow it down even more and personalize it. Christ died for me. And you might even quote this verse. I have been crucified with Christ. It's singular. It's personal. And of course there is truth in all of those answers. We are the beneficiaries of the death of Christ. But in the first instance, Jesus did not die for me. Let me explain this. And it's important we understand it. You see, we don't demand death as a punishment for sin. We'd be very happy with an arrangement that said, as long as you are really sorry and you really repent and you confess your sin, then God will forgive you. You don't need a cross for that. My kids have grown up now. I have grandchildren. When my kids were young, if one of them did something wrong, my son, I've got one son and two daughters, if my son, because he was the one who usually did things wrong, if anybody did, if he did something wrong, I didn't say, Matthew, that was wrong. Somebody's going to have to die for this. <laughs> that would be called child abuse, wouldn't it? Now, if he came and said, Daddy, I'm really sorry, would you please forgive me? He didn't use such posh words as that, but if he did, I would say, of course. If you're really sorry. So why is there a cross and a crucifixion and a death at the heart of the Christian message? I'll tell you why. Because it's not we who demand the cross. It is God who demands the cross because in the first instance Jesus died for his father let me explain this I want to explain this in three ways first of all to say that through the cross God is satisfied let me explain what I mean by that what lies behind the cross is not in the first instance the love of God, though God is love, so love permeates everything, but in the first instance, it is actually the wrath of God. Romans is probably the most systematic explanation of the gospel that we have in the entire New Testament because when Paul wrote to the Romans, he'd never been there. He had nothing to correct like he usually did with his other letters or nothing to remind them of. Or, or, but, but, but he wrote to say, I'm going to go to Spain. That was his reason. I'm going to visit you on the way, he said. And I'm going to tell you what my message is going to be when I come. And so he explains the gospel uh, most systematically, which is why Romans is the favorite book for many of us. 
But don't speed read Romans to get to the juicy parts when he talks about forgiveness and justification by faith. You know, these big words, but these important truths and union with Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. All these things are wonderful things we love. And in the book of Romans, usually chapter 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, especially we've underlined in all kinds of markings and colors because we love those chapters. But don't speed read through chapter 1, 2, and 3 because in those chapters, he talks about the fact that the reason why Christ is going to need to die is because God's judgment, God's wrath, which is God's holiness, needs to be addressed. And so in chapter 3, he says something where I'm going to quote from the ESV because it uses an important word that is a, a, a good word. It's the original word, but the NIV uh, uses a different word. But this is what it says in Romans 3.24. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, this word propitiation is the key word there. What does the word propitiation and to propitiate mean? It's not a word we use every day, is it? It means to turn away wrath by satisfying its demands. So here's a silly illustration, but it makes a little bit of the point. If I upset my wife by saying something or doing something or usually not doing something, and I go out and I come back with a nice bouquet of flowers, and I say, hello, sweetheart, I brought you some flowers. A big smile will come across her face. I will have propitiated her, you see. She'll say, oh, isn't Charles nice? I was thinking how nasty he was a little while ago. He's brought me some flowers. Now, that's a superficial illustration. But it's a little bit of this point that Jesus Christ is on the cross is addressing the wrath of God and satisfying his wrath. Here in 1 John 2 and verse 2, let me read you this verse. Speaking of Christ, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only. Only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He's the propitiation for our sins. First John 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, the reason why God sent his son is that his son might address and satisfy the just wrath and judgment of God, which is what chapters 1, 2, and 3 Romans are largely about. You see, the early part of Romans, if I refer to that, doesn't deal with sin as a problem to us primarily. It deals with sin as a problem to God. It is a problem to us. It talks about that later. And the solution to that is to be forgiven and to learn how to live a godly life. But the first issue and the essential issue is that sin is a problem to God. It breaks relationship with him and provokes his wrath. And so Jesus, in the first instance, did not die for you or for me because we don't demand that. In the first instance, he was addressing his father. He died for his father. You see, it's impossible in the nature of God for him to just forgive sin. And think about that, because if God could just forgive sin, then, then why wouldn't he? If he could just forgive sin, the cross would be an extremely extravagant gesture, but not necessary. And the two things in the character of God that make the cross necessary is that God is just on the one hand and he is merciful on the other hand. Now, we know that about God, don't we? He's just and he's merciful. But these two things are incompatible when you think about it. Justice, by definition, 
is giving people what they deserve. That's justice. Tit for tat. That's justice. Mercy, by definition, is not giving people what they deserve. Now, if justice is giving people what they deserve and mercy is not giving people what they deserve, you cannot be just and merciful at the same time to the same person in the same context. You're either just, give them what they deserve, or you're merciful, you let them go free, but you can't do both. So to give an illustration, you've heard a version of this in all kinds of ways, probably many times. If you've been in church many times, I'm sure you've heard this kind of example many times. I'll give it to you again, then explain it a bit more fully. If I was driving through Norwich at uh, 80 kilometers an hour, can you go that fast in Norwich? No. And I see a blue flashing light behind me, pulling me over. What's the limit? 50? And a big burly guy gets out and comes up and says, hey, what are you doing driving at 80 80 kilometers an hour? I said, well, there was nothing on the road. And uh, he said, yeah, but what's the rule here? I said, uh, well, probably 50. He said, you're right. So you're guilty of breaking the law. And supposing he summons me to appear in court somewhere, um, I can pay. You could have options, don't you? You can pay on the spot. You can go and negotiate somewhere, try and get a bit off your fine, or you can go and defend yourself in court. Suppose I go to court and I stand up and the magistrate says, were you driving your car at 80 kilometers an hour in Norwich? And I say, yes, I was. Do you know the limit is 50, what I do now? Yeah. Are you guilty then or not guilty? Well, I guess I'm guilty. Then he has one of two options. He can find me. What's the going rate? You probably know. What is the going rate? No, you don't know. He doesn't know what it is. Come on. Do you believe him? What's the going rate? So it's right. $200, I don't know, $500, what's what? anybody know the rate? Come on, come on. What? 230 That was an authoritative number. 230 That's pretty cheap. Well, that's where I come from. <laughs> so it's 230 So he says, uh, I'm going to, because you're guilty, He's got one or two options. He can either find me $230 or he can say, I understand you don't live here and you're a bit late and it was a Sunday morning and there wasn't any traffic around the street. I'll let you go free this time. Just don't do it again. He can be merciful to me or he can be just. He can't be both. So he says, I'm going to be just because that's my job. I'm going to find you $230. And I said, oh, man, I have $230. Goodness me. Is that, is that? Yep. I'm going to find you $230. Bang. Down comes his gavel. I said, man, what am I going to do? And uh, Sai comes in and says, uh, what's the score? I said, well, I'm guilty. What have I done? They're going to find me $230. You got $230? No, I haven't. Oh, you don't? No. So he looks into his pocket. <laughs> uh, this, is a, this is an extreme, exaggerated illustration, as you realize. And he says, hey, come with me. And we go to the clerk, clerk of the court and say, uh, I see Charles Price is fined for him $30. I'd like to pay his fine for him. And the record of the courtroom <laughs> says, Charles Price Crime, speeding, guilty, fine of $230, paid. Now, you know that illustration, don't you? You've heard it before in different ways. So I walk out of the courtroom. I'm the recipient of mercy, of course, the mercy of a third party. A third party stepped into the picture. I walk out of the courtroom not because the judge is being merciful to me, but because... The fine has been paid on the basis of justice. I'm now free. And in the cross of Jesus Christ, he is meeting the just demands of God. The soul that sins shall die. The wages of sin is death. 
and standing as my substitute, he addresses the justice of God and dies in my place. And let me ask you an important question. When you confess your sin to God, as I'm sure you do, do you appeal to his mercy or do you appeal to his justice? I'm going to ask you to respond in just a moment. <laughs> when you confess your sin, are you appealing to his mercy or are you appealing to his justice? If you appeal to his, if you appeal to his mercy, would you please put your hand up? Let's see how many that's most of you participants. Great. Thank you. If you appeal to his justice, please put your hand up. One hand. <laughs> I asked you that question because I thought you might get it wrong. And you did in a very important way, most of you. Do you know what 1 John 1 verse 9 says? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and Big one? Just. In other words, says John, when you appeal to God for forgiveness, you are actually appealing to his justice, which is why it is called being justified, not being mercified. <laughs> there isn't such a word. And so my first point is, through the cross, God is satisfied. He accepts the payment in full that his justice demands in the death of Jesus Christ. My second point is, through the cross, people are justified. And it's called justified because it is a just act of God to forgive you. Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by the grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now, justified is actually a legal term. It says that justice has been satisfied. It's not another word for being forgiven. It's a completely different word to being forgiven. It's much more than that. One of the best illustrations I know of this is that in Scotland, before capital punishment was abolished, and, and by the way, I come from England originally, uh, Scottish law and English law are different, different systems. So this applied in Scotland. Before capital punishment was abolished, I think it was in 1963, when a person was hanged, usually for murder, they put up a notice outside the prison gates or on the prison gates announcing that the convict had been hanged. And they always used the same wording. It was legal wording required to be on that notice. And it would say this, on such and such a date, which was the date of the execution, the hanging, Eight o'clock in the morning at, let's say, Barlini Prison in Glasgow, so-and-so, naming the murderer, was justified. That was the language they used. What did they mean when they said he was justified this morning at eight o'clock? They mean, oh, they said he didn't do it at eight o'clock this morning. Is that what that means? No. Could they mean he'd been forgiven? No, that isn't the meaning of it. What it meant was this, that the demands of the law in this case have been fully satisfied, execution has taken place, the case, the case is closed, justice has been done, the judge has taken off his wig and gone home, the lawyers are working on other cases, and the policemen are back on the street. It's over. Finished. Totally. In fact, in Scottish law, as in most legal systems, 
If this man has been executed for that crime, and a week later somebody comes along and says, actually it was me who did it, they cannot retry this case again. It's over. And so when the scripture says that we are justified, it doesn't mean you've been forgiven because God has been nice to you. Forgive me saying it that way. That's not the basis of it. It's Jesus Christ died your death. I have been crucified with him in the legal counsel of God. It's over. The judge has taken off his wig. He's no longer acting as your judge. Because it's over. It's been judged. It's done. It's been paid. Now I'll tell you why this is important. If we appeal to God's mercy when we confess our sin, there will almost certainly become times in our lives when we think, I've committed this sin once too often now. I will have exhausted the mercy of God. That's why I sit in counsel, often with people who are living under the condemnation of the same sin they've confessed a thousand times. Because they think maybe God now is not going to be merciful anymore because I've done this a thousand times. But if we appeal to his justice, if we confess our sins and believe he is faithful and just, his attention goes from our sin to the cross of his son. Yes. On the basis of justice, your sin is gone. L let me illustrate this. Supposing you come every night this week, ne next four nights, including tonight, and I hope you will, and you live outside of the town itself, and you drive into the town. And as you drive into the town, you say, you know, I need a cup of coffee. I understand there are two coffee shops here. There's Tim Hortons and there's Norma's. <laughs> I don't know which is the best. But let's say you drop into Tim Hortons, and you drop into Tim Hortons, and you go up to the counter, and, and you say, uh, good evening, I, I need a, a cup of coffee, please. But I've got a problem. I didn't bring any money with me. I never carry cash, I'm sorry. I just left my wallet at home. But I, I'm desperate for a cup of coffee. C could you just give me a cup of coffee? They'd say, I'm sorry, sir, we, we don't just give away coffee like that. Yeah, but you, you can just give me one cup, can't you? Well, we're not a charity, you know. We don't just give away coffee. Yeah, but you, you pour away coffee, don't you? After uh, Tim Hortons, after so many minutes, you pour the coffee away. Well, just pretend you're pouring it away and put it in my cup for me. Just <laughs> come on, just give it to me. You're not going to go bankrupt, are you? Yeah, but we're not. Go on, just give me it, please. And so the person on the counter says, okay, just don't tell anybody. Here's your cup of coffee. You say, thank you. Monday night, you come back into the meeting, to these meetings again, and uh, you drive into Norwich and you think, man, I could just do a cup of coffee again. <laughs> hey, they gave me one. I didn't bring my wallet again. They gave me one at Tim Hortons last night. So you go to Tim Hortons and say, good evening, uh, I'd like a cup of coffee, please, but I, I forgot my wallet again. I'm so sorry. So well, I can't just give you another one. But he gave me one last night. I, I know, but I can't just keep giving you free coffee. Did you go bankrupt last night? Of course we didn't. Did you, did you get into trouble for that? No. I mean, did you think it was in that coffee you pour away after every 40 minutes with me? Yeah, that was okay. Well, just give me a cup of coffee. No, but we just don't give away coffee. Please, just once. Oh, they said, well, there's a line behind you. Okay, here's your coffee. Get out. You say, thank you, take coffee. You're coming on Tuesday night, and you say, uh, <laughs> I'd love a cup of coffee. You won't believe this. I don't have any money again. I can't just give you some coffee. Get out of here. <laughs> but supposing I know you, and I know you never carry a wallet, and I know you love your coffee, and I go into Tim Hortons on this afternoon, and I say, I've got a friend coming in this afternoon, 
and uh, he'll need some coffee later. Uh, he never carries any money. Here's 50 bucks. And you come in and you say, I'd love a cup of coffee, but I'm so sorry I didn't bring any money with me. Yeah, we don't just give away coffee, though. Yeah, I know, but I just, oh, by the way, what's your name? Oh, okay, no problem. You want a large? <laughs> They're giving you coffee. You come back on Monday night and say, I'd love a cup of coffee. Don't bring, I didn't bring any money. Oh, no problem, no problem. Yeah, have another one. You come back on Tuesday night, and as you walk up there and say, hey, how you doing? We got your coffee here for you. Would you like a donut to go with it this time? What's the difference? First time you appear to their mercy, just be kind to me, please. And you're exhausted eventually. Second time you appear to justice, there's cash in the till. And the wonderful thing is, when you and I come, Lord Jesus, and say, Lord Jesus, I have sinned. I know it's again. I know I've confessed this before. Please forgive me. You'll say there's cash in the till. I want to make it sound crude or cheap, because it isn't. But the currency is the precious blood of Jesus, not with the blood of bulls and goats and things like that, but the blood of Jesus is the currency that says it's paid for. Now, this is another subject. That doesn't mean we can just go and sing because there's cash in the till and come and keep. Paul, when he talks about this, actually, in Romans 5, he says, shall we continue in sin then, that grace may be? In other words, wow, if there's money in the till, can I just drink all the coffee I want? Can I commit all the sin I want? And Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a very powerful preacher, one-on preacher, uh, in the 20th century. He said, if you don't ask the question, can't I just continue in sin then? You've not really understand what Christ did. Because you ask the question, because you say, logically, well, why can't I just continue in sin? But Paul's answer is, of course not. Because the whole point of being freed from your sin is you're equipped then to live a whole new quality of life. That's not the point we'll talk about now. But you see, when we come before God, we come with no cash. We come in poverty. As Romans 5, 6 says, while we were still powerless, Christ died for us. Verse 8 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10 says, while we were enemies, we are reconciled to God for the death of his son. So we come with empty hands. We have nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ, the cross of Christ, has already addressed and satisfied the just demands of God on your sin and on my sin, which is the basis on which we are freed. Because we're not just forgiven, we're justified. The case is over. And this meets one of the deepest needs of the human heart. The deepest need is to be reconciled to God. The deepest symptom of not being reconciled to God is our sense of guilt and our need to be forgiven. I remember once driving several years ago now in the, when I was in, uh, was in Britain and uh, I, I was driving and I was listening to the, an interview on the radio with a psychiatrist who was the head of a... Uh, Psychiatric Institute in Britain. And he said something that caused me to pull off the freeway, stop my car, and write down what I just heard him say before I forgot it. He said this, if my patients could be assured of forgiveness, half of them would go home tomorrow. He's saying half of the people whose lives have broken down, they've been institutionalized, in a psychiatric institute, I hear because of guilt that's been unresolved. And I read in Newsweek magazine, an American psychiatrist said, 95% of insanity in America has its roots in a refusal to accept forgiveness. I have no way of verifying that figure, but I quote it to you. 
most breakdown of people's lives has to do with not being forgiven. And if we confess our sins, and by the way, sin leads to our mouth. We confess it. Doesn't mean we have to remember every single sin, but we acknowledge I'm a sinner. I have sinned against God. And when you can be specific, it's good to, but sometimes we're not able to be specific. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. He'll not just forgive, but clean us out, purify us from all unrighteousness. And we must believe this. I love some of the beautiful descriptions that are used of what it means to be forgiven and to be separated from our sins. Uh, For instance, in Psalm 103 and verse 12, David says that as far as the east is from the west, so far as, ha, as uh, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. It's interesting he says as far as the east is from the west, not as far as the north is from the south, because the north and the south are fixed points, of course. If you go north, and I traveled a while ago from Toronto to Shanghai, and we took off from Toronto. We went due north. In fact, we went slightly northeast. I followed on the map. And we went up over uh, uh, Hudson Bay and, and over the north of Norway. And on the map was a little compass that was pointing north, slightly northeast. And suddenly, as we crossed over the North Pole area, the compass began to spin around and we were heading south into China because north is a fixed point if you go north you eventually going to go south if you go south you eventually go north if you go east you go right around the world you never begin to go west if you go west you go right around the world never begin to go east it's as far as the east is from the west infinity he takes our sin and removes them in such a way that cannot be reconciled again Isaiah 38 verse 17 says you put all my sins behind your back <clears throat> God is omnipresent in all places at all times. Where is there such a place as behind his back? Well, it doesn't exist, and that's where he's put our sins. They've been put out of existence. I love this from Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions and remembers your sin no more. Three times we have that statement in Scripture that God remembers our sin no more. I wish we believed that. Doesn't mean he's forgetful. But he never recalls it again against you. I heard about two young boys, brothers, who were fighting one day. Been fighting all day and when they came to go to bed at night, the mother came to the eldest and the two boys and said, you've been fighting your brother all day today. You need to make up with him before you go to bed tonight and forgive him. He said, I'm not going to forgive him. It's his fault. He started it. <laughs> so she tried to appeal to his sentiment a little bit and said, just suppose that during the night your brother died. Wouldn't you be sorry in the morning if you hadn't forgiven him? And he thought for a moment and he said, uh, okay. Okay, I'll forgive him. But if he's alive in the morning... <laughs> I think sometimes we have that fear, don't we? God, I, 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 I confess my sin and you've forgiven me, thank you, but I'm a little nervous now of the morning. <laughs> a little nervous. Do you know there's a verse in Romans 8, which you often have up here in front of you, which says, there is now, you don't need to put it there, but okay, okay. <laughs> there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. I have a friend, and he, when he became a Christian from a completely non-Christian background, he had a life that had been messed up in all kinds of ways, and he got a Bible, and he read it through. He was really excited about being a Christian, and he said, when I came to this verse, in Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation. Those in Christ Jesus, he said he took his pen, and he underlined no condemnation, so hard 
that the ink went right the way through to the book of Philippians. <laughs> she said, every time I read from Romans to Philippians, uh, there was a blue mark. And it reminded me, no condemnation, no condemnation, no condemnation. So why do we struggle with condemnation? I'll tell you why. Because there are two who talk to us about our sin. One is the Holy Spirit and one is Satan. And it tells us in Revelation 12, speaking of the devil, that he is the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before God day and night. So the Holy Spirit convicts. We know that. Scripture tells us that that's part of his work. He convicts us. The devil condemns. What's the difference? Condemnation is like a wet blanket that sits on you and you can't get out. And you live under it. Conviction makes us aware of our sin, but at the same time, always makes us aware of the way out. He convicts of sin and of judgment. That means it's been dealt with. And of righteousness, there's a new freedom for you. Holy Spirit convicts of sin, judgment, and righteousness. And the thing is, when the devil comes and speak to us about our sin, although he is a liar and the father of lies, Scripture tells us, he doesn't have to lie in this case. You did such and such. It's true. But the lie is, and you are condemned by this. That's why Scripture tells us we have an advocate in First Corinthians, in First John, rather, verse 2, we have a, a lawyer, if you like, who works on our behalf. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, we have an advocate, a lawyer, who speaks to the Father in our defense. So when we are convicted, or when we come under condemnation, the Lord Jesus speaks on our behalf as a lawyer and says, yes, Charles Price is actually guilty of this. But that sin was paid for. It's been absorbed in the cross. He speaks in our defense. And we're free. And here's a beautiful verse. 1 John 4:17. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. You ever read that verse and thought about it? We have confidence in the day of judgment? We're going to stand before God on the day of judgment. Do I stand cowering? Well, I deserve to, of course. But we stand with confidence. Why? Because in this world, we are like him. Why? Because one day, he was like me. He became me as my substitute. Which is the third point, and I'll just do this very quickly. Through the cross, God is satisfied. Through the cross, people are justified. And through the cross, I am unified, is the word I'm going to use, with Christ. So going back to our text, I have been crucified with Christ. His death as my substitute is such that in the reckoning of God, I died with him. I paid for it. Going back to being fined $230 in the courtroom for speeding. The records of that court will say against my name, I am guilty. I have been fined $230. I have paid. That's what the records will say. I have paid. The fact it was somebody else's cash is not the point. I have paid in the legal councils of Ontario. I'm free in that sense. And in the legal councils of heaven, I have been crucified with Christ. I'm free. One good Friday, I was invited to Ottawa where a number of the churches joined together for a good Friday service. They do it three times, but it's many churches, at least a number of churches, that join for this and they meet in one of the the main, one of the larger churches in the city. 
And they asked me one year to speak at that service. And they asked me to send them a title for my message. So I sent the title, because it's always good to try and think of something that's, that, that makes people think. <laughs> I sent the title, Good Friday, that particular year, Enjoy Your Own Funeral. That was my message title. So when I got there, I was meeting before the first service with some of the pastors in the, in the city who, who were part of the planning of it. And one of them said to me, that's an intriguing title, Enjoy Your Own Funeral. Sounds a bit morbid. What's it about? I said, well, it's Good Friday. Who died on the cross on Good Friday? He said, Jesus did. Who else died on the cross? He said, well, there were two thieves. I said, who else? This is a pastor I was talking to. <laughs> he said, tell me. I said, you did. You died that day. As Paul explains in Romans 6, not only that, and you were buried with him that day. And I said, the great thing about looking back to that first Good Friday is it was my execution in the person of Jesus Christ. I have been crucified with him, which is why Paul says we on the day of judgment will have confidence because we are like him because he was like us. We are in Christ. That sin has gone. There may be some of us here this morning greatest need in your life is to know this. You may be a Christian but living under condemnation it's a foothold the devil gains in many people's lives. If you feel under condemnation and you've come in true confession and repentance before God but you live under condemnation you're listening to the lie of the devil and you're saying Jesus' death was not enough. And it was. You are justified as the murderer is just, was justified in Scotland, according to the law, by paying the price. The price was paid. Justice has been satisfied. And we confess our sins and so he's just and forgives us. You need to believe this. It will bring liberty and freedom into your life. It has nothing to do with whether you deserve it or whether you've done this for 50 times. It's to do with the sufficiency of the death of Christ and the blood of Christ. But there are others of us perhaps this morning and you've never come into this relationship with God at all. This is the threshold. This is the beginning. This is the way in. The way into a relationship with God is recognizing the barrier that separates me from God was broken down in the cross. I was crucified with him. And I'm free. So what do you do about it? You acknowledge that. You acknowledge your sin before him. We confess it. And we thank him. Your death was my death. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Every sin I've ever committed was included in your death and I'm wiped clean, justified, cleansed. As far as the east is from the west, they've been separated from me and your sins and your iniquities, God said, I remember no more. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But that is only the way in. But some of you need to come there, maybe this morning. I'm going to lead you in a prayer in just a moment, just to thank him for his death and invite him to cleanse and to acknowledge that cleansing. But what we're going to look at tonight is that that isn't the point of the Christian life, just to be clean. I'm crucified with Christ, but I live, but not I. Christ lives in me.
And the reason we come out of our sin is that we might come into a relationship whereby his life is implanted in us by the Holy Spirit. And to live in the power of that life. And we'll talk about that this evening. But let, let's pray together. And there's some of us here and you've never come into the liberty and freedom that Christ purchased for you. The freedom of being justified, being under no condemnation, being liberated. Don't look at what you deserve. Look at the cross of Jesus Christ. And I want you to pray with me some simple words to acknowledge that he in his love and mercy which lies behind the cross has opened the door for me to be reconciled to him. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner. I know there are things that are wrong in my life. But I thank you, there isn't a single sin for which Christ did not die. And so I confess my sin to you. Would you do that personally in your own heart? I thank you all of those sins were placed on Jesus Christ. You paid my debt. And I'm free. Please forgive me. Thank you for justifying me. Thank you for bringing me back into a relationship with yourself. And help me to trust you. To live by your Holy Spirit in me. To live a new life. I pray it in Jesus' name.